This week on A Year With, May 21st through May 27th, we have read Alexander Pope's essay on man, Manzoni's picture of some 17th century Italian bravi, a tragic poem from Thomas Hood, Adam Smith on money, Emerson's heroism, Shakespeare's King Lear, and Lessing's The Education of the Human Race. Welcome to the 21st episode of A Year With, the podcast where we explore great ideas from our common history good ideas and bad ones by reading together for a whole year. For the year of 2022, we're reading The Harvard Classics, a world literature anthology published starting in 1909. And please return to the introduction episode that I posted on the first week of 2022, which may help you understand my project here and where you can hear an invitation to join me. Okay, so we begin this week from Alexander Pope's essay on man, or at least a selection from it. Uh, Alexander Pope was a satirist and a poet of the uh, of early 18th century England who wrote uh, long-form poetry like the Dunciad, which is a, a send-up of epic poetry in honor of the goddess Dullness, and uh, the Rape of the Lock, uh, and note that the meaning of that word in the title refers to an older meaning of rape, uh, which means to grab or to take, uh, and referring in this case to taking a lock of hair. Um, the essay on man, um, kind of like John Milton, uh, sought to quote, vindicate the ways of God to man, right? So this poem has four epistles. Um, you might recognize that word from the Bible, um, where the, the letters in the, the back toward the end of the, the new Testament are called epistles. So they're like letters, um, which is his name for the various se- sections here. And this section we have has the theme of, um, of the nature and state of man with respect to happiness. Okay, so what does Pope tell us here? First, he says that happiness is, quote, our being's end and aim, and it's for everyone. Um, Quote, nowhere to be found or everywhere. Tis never to be bought, but always free, Uh, end quote. And that not all of what we call happiness truly is. So when we debase ourselves like animals or we... uh, aggrandize ourselves like gods and put ourselves over the moral laws of the universe. So happiness then cannot be directly related to material goods as these are unevenly distributed by nature. Um, So uh, another quote here, order is heaven's first law and this confessed some are and must be greater than the rest, more rich, more wise, but who infers from hence that such are happier shocks all common sense. Heaven to mankind impartial we confess, if all are equal in their happiness. But mutual wants this happiness increase, all nature's difference keeps all nature's peace. So happiness then is found in that which is available to all and in accordance with God's will. So that is virtue. The broad thesis of the poem as a whole is a defense of the claim that the world is as God intends it to be. So that the world is, as we experience it, as God intends it to be, and that the way things are should be accepted. Uh, This is obviously a matter of some controversy, um, and it's related to that idea that we live in the best of all possible worlds that was mocked in uh, Voltaire's Candide through Professor Pangloss. Um, We can see that here in this disregard of a connection between the material state 
of uh, in which a person exists and happiness. So Pope is not regarding how those things influence one another. Um, that, of course, raises the concern that when we're talking about happiness, we're not always talking about the same thing when we use that word. Uh, it reminds us that we should really define our terms. So to Alexander Pope, the happy life is the virtuous one and is the only one worthy of a universal goal for all people. So from this point of view, it makes sense. Uh, indulging in a luxury like, uh, I don't know, 1,200 thread count sheets or fine wine, it might bring a certain positive feeling, something I enjoy, but it's really hard to prescribe uh, high thread count sheets or fine wine as a universal value or goal for all humankind. Um, so I think this makes a certain sense, even as I question the whole best of all possible worlds concept. And I think that there is room for humans acting in God-given freedom to screw things up. Okay. So for May 22nd, and this is the anniversary of the death of Manzoni, the author we have here today, we're back to the Italian novel I Promessi Sposi, the, the betrothed in English, which is set in the 17th century but was um, published in 1828, written by Alessandro Manzoni, who uh, was a sympathizer of Italian unification and was instrumental in creating a dominant Italian dialect on the Italian peninsula, which, as you know, people who speak similar languages um, are united in some special way. Um, he actually rewrote the novel in the late 1830s to remove uh, non-Tuscan dialects that would become the, the dominant or preferred dialect on the peninsula. So, if you remember the broad strokes of the story from previous episodes, uh, this, this story follows two lovers, Lucia and Renzo, who are blocked from marriage by the uh, repugnant, disgusting Spanish nobleman, Don Rodrigo. Uh, they flee Don Rodrigo and are separated, and then they work to reunite, and they endure uh, many, many trials. Um, and finally... Rather than being dropped in the middle, as we have been before, we actually have been given chapter one of the story. So this novel begins here with a prosaic but picturesque description of the landscape around Lake Como in the mountains of Lombardy in northern Italy. We have a scene of Spanish oppression in the lake area city of Lecco uh, with this sardonic line, quote, at the time the events happened, which we undertake to recount, this town, already of considerable importance, was also a place of defense, and for that reason had the honor of lodging a commander, and the advantage of possessing a fixed garrison of Spanish soldiers, who taught modesty to the damsels and matrons of the country, and bestowed from time to time marks of their favor on the shoulder of a husband or father and never failed in autumn to disperse themselves in the vineyards to thin the grapes and lighten for the peasant the labors of the vintage. So, ouch, it's pretty hot burn. Um, we zoom in on a curate, uh, like a priest, uh, walking. He, he goes around a corner, and he sees this fearsome sight of one of the features of life in northern Italy at the time in which this story is set. He sees a bravo, uh, a sort of mercenary who works for the local ruler. So here's the picture of the two bravi we find. Two men, and quote here, two men opposite the other were stationed at the confluence, so to say, of the two ways. One of them was sitting across the low wall, 
with one leg dangling on the outer side and the other supporting him in the path. His companion was standing up, leaning against the wall with his arms crossed on his breast. Their dress, their carriage, and so much of their expression as could be distinguished at the distance at which the curate stood, left no doubt about their condition. Each had a green net on his head, which fell upon the left shoulder and ended in a large tassel. Their long hair, appearing in one large lock upon the forehead, upon the upper lip, two long mustachios, curled at the end, their doublets, confined by bright leathern girdles, from which hung a brace of pistols, a little horn of powder dangling round their necks and falling on their breasts like a necklace, on the right side of their large and loose pantaloons, a pocket, and from the pocket the handle of a dagger, a sword, hanging on the left with a large basket hilt of brass, carved in cipher, polished and gleaming, all, at a glance, discovered them to be individuals of the species Bravo. So this here sets the story for the sets the scene for the story to follow. So this is a scene um, throughout the story of brutal cronies and thugs who serve the corrupt and wicked local rulers, and they torment our protagonists throughout. Okay, so for uh, May twenty third, we have the nineteenth century English poet uh, Thomas Hood. Hood was considered a writer of humorous works. Uh, but the poem we have today covers a darkly serious topic, suicide. Uh, he was inspired by a homeless woman who killed herself by jumping off the Waterloo Bridge into the Thames in London. And I will share this poem in its entirety. The Bridge of Sighs. One more unfortunate, weary of breath, rashly importunate, gone to her death. Take her up tenderly, lift her with care, fashioned so slenderly young and so fair. Look at her garments clinging like cerements, whilst the wave constantly drips from her clothing. Take her up instantly, loving, not loathing. Touch her not scornfully, think of her mournfully, gently and humanly, not of the stains of her, all that remains of her now is pure womanly. Make no deep scrutiny into her mutiny, rash and undutiful, past all dishonor, Death has left on her only the beautiful. Still, for all slips of hers, one of Eve's family, wipe those poor lips of hers, oozing so clamily. Loop up her tresses escaped from the comb, her fair auburn tresses, whilst wonderment guesses where was her home. Who was her father? Who was her mother? Had she a sister? Had she a brother? Or was there a dearer one, still and a nearer one, yet than all other? Alas, for the rarity of Christian charity, under the sun, oh, it was pitiful, near a whole city full, home, she had none. Sisterly, brotherly, fatherly, motherly, feelings had changed. Love, by harsh evidence, thrown from its eminence, even God's providence, seeming estranged. Where the lamps quiver so far in the river, with many a light from window and casement, from garret to basement, she stood with amazement houseless by night. The bleak wind of March made her tremble and shiver, but not the dark arch or the black flowing river, mad from life's history, glad to death's mystery, swift to be hurled anywhere, anywhere out of the world. In she plunged boldly, 
No matter how coldly the rough river ran over the brink of it, picture it, think of it, dissolute man. Lave in it, drink of it, then, if you can. Take her up tenderly, lift her with care, fashioned so slenderly, young and so fair. Air her limbs frigidly, stiffen too rigidly, decently, kindly, smooth and compose them, and her eyes close them, staring so blindly. Dreadfully staring through muddy impurity, as when with the daring last look of disparity fixed on futurity. Perishing gloomily, spurred by contumely, cold in humanity, burning insanity into her rest, cross her hands humbly, as if praying dumbly over her breast, owning her weakness, her evil behavior, and leaving with meekness her sins to her Savior. So yes, very uh, reflective piece there. Um, a lot of interesting uh, feminine rhymes at the end of the lines and kind of tells us how universal some of these things are. We get the sense sometimes that these kind of struggles didn't affect people in the same way in the past, and they did. All right, so for May 24th, we get to talk about that touchy subject of money. Um, We know it's really important, but we have such mixed feelings about money. We want it, but we don't want to want it. Most of us don't even know how to describe what it is, and yet it's a central part of our lives. It only has value because we all agree that it has value, but we wouldn't want to be without it because it gives us a way to exchange items, to measure value and to store value, and there's really no good replacement for it. I actually found this uh, silly couplet on the uh, Wikipedia page for money that sums it up, and uh, I, I hope to goodness that they actually say this um, in economics courses where I'm imagining some like Ben Stein-type professor droning out, money's a matter of functions for a medium, a measure, a standard, a store. I really hope that happens, um, but that does kind of sum up everything that money is. So anyway, today we're returning to Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, which we started in the 13th episode. Um, Adam Smith, again, as a quick reminder, was an 18th century Scot whose book The Wealth of Nations is a foundational economic text that describes many of the basic principles of free market economics and wealth building. So the previous selection was on the division of labor, where in an economy, we do great and productive things when we each, in a sense, focus on what we do best and on what services that we can provide that others value the most from us. So you're left then with the fact that with the appropriate division of labor, you don't really provide anything you need for yourself. A man cannot live by pins alone, you might say. Um, as Smith explains, quote, when the division of labor has been once thoroughly established, it is but a very small part of a man's wants which the produce of his own labor can supply. He supplies the far greater part of them by exchanging that surplus part of the produce of his own labor, which is over and above his own consumption, for such parts of the produce of other men's labor as he has occasion for. Every man thus lives by exchanging, or becomes in some measure a merchant, and the society itself grows to be what is properly a commercial society. So, just to sum that, people dividing their labor can exchange goods with one another, but this leads to another problem. Smith continues. But when the division of labor first began to take place, this power of exchanging must frequently have been very much clogged and embarrassed in its operations. One man, we shall suppose, uh, has more of a certain commodity than he himself has occasion for, while another has less. The former, consequently, would be glad to dispose of, and the latter to purchase, a part of this superfluity. 
But if this latter should chance to have nothing that the former stands in need of, no exchange can be made between them. The butcher has more meat in his shop than he himself can consume, and the brewer and the baker would each of them be willing to purchase a part of it. But they have nothing to offer in exchange except the different productions of their respective trades, and the butcher is already provided with all of the bread and the beer which he has immediate occasion for. No exchange can, in this case, be made between them. He cannot be their merchant, nor they his customers, and they are all of them thus mutually less serviceable to one another. So this is where money comes in. This led to the start of a medium of exchange, or what would evolve into money. By designating some commodity, so think of cattle, wheat, sugar, or hides, that people would not only be able to use, but they would accept even if they were not needed at the immediate time, because they could be useful for getting other things. This phenomenon is uh, even known in artificial economies like prisons, where uh, cigarettes become a medium of exchange even among people who don't smoke, because the cigarettes are valuable for exchanging for other desirable things. Um, however, as you might guess, cows and sugar have certain limitations, so people ultimately settled on a more practical medium of exchange, metals. So metals are non-perishable, and they can be easily added and divided, uh, much unlike a cow. Um, things like stamped coinage later became a symbol of trust when you could not be sure of the weight of a piece of metal or what it was composed of. So since Smith's time, the concept of money has uh, evolved or changed even further. Um, even at his time, metal money could be debased or could even be devalued by the discovery of new sources of the metal. So uh, an example of that would be when the European colonists began importing gold from the Americas. Um, since that time, we have what you would call representative money, like paper notes that stand for a certain amount of gold or silver, and now fiat money, um, which I, uh, it's from the Latin for let it be, um, which I actually don't know from money. I actually know from uh, the Virgin Mary's response to God and not from the world of money, um, which is built on a combination of trust and the fact that the government gives it value by making it legal for paying debts and taxes. Um, it's always interesting to reflect on something that's so important to us that we don't like to think about. Um, and when you consider it, it all becomes very logical. Um, but it all seems very illogical if you don't give it a lot of thought. Okay. Um, you may remember back in the 17th episode, our encounter with Ralph Waldo Emerson, the American transcendentalist philosopher, uh, essayist, lecturer, um, all those things. I told you that I once found Emerson tiring. I think I compared him to eating a too-rich piece of cake. Um, I am gradually warming to his writing. I think that what I have the most trouble with, perhaps, is like transcendentalism itself, um, where transcendentalism, being skeptical of science and enamored with intuition, and those are both things that I have a lot of trouble with. Um, However, I will admit that as a writer, Emerson, and likely um, as a speaker too, since many of his essays started as lectures, Emerson is very skilled and effective. Um, I don't find a lot to object to here, though this is not a polemical piece, and so the point is not to object to anything, but just to take it in and see where he's coming from. So think about this for yourself. What is heroism to you? Um, you know, we all have our own criteria about what it means to be a hero. Um, but these definitions likely kind of overlap around concepts like bravery 
or courage or fortitude. So we would like draw some Venn diagrams with words like that in there. And somewhere in the middle, we would have uh, heroism. Emerson includes these concepts, but he decorates that concept with intuition or even what we might think of as recklessness. Um, to Emerson, a hero does things with does with great confidence and intuition about what is right without thinking about it very much. So they don't think too deeply, they just move. It's more action, less thinking. A hero does not coldly calculate things. So Emerson here, quote, Towards all this external evil, the man within the breast assumes a warlike attitude and affirms his ability to cope single-handed with the infinite army of enemies. To this military attitude of the soul, we give the name of heroism. And then later, heroism feels and never reasons and therefore is always right. And although a different breeding, different religion, and greater intellectual activity would have modified or even reversed the particular action, yet for the hero, that thing he does is the highest deed, and not open to the censure of philosophers or divines. It is the avowal of the unschooled man that he finds a quality in him that is negligent of expense, of health, of life, of danger, of hatred, of reproach, and that he knows that his will is higher and more excellent than all actual and all possible antagonists, end quote. So there's something about a hero that demands that he or she be demonstrably right. There is a certain indifference to reality. So I can kind of see a, a, a Don Quixote type would be swept right in as a hero in this framework. The hero believes in his cause and he believes in himself. Quote, self-trust is the essence of heroism. It is the state of the soul at war and its ultimate objects are the last defiance of falsehood and wrong, and the power to bear all that can be inflicted by evil agents. It speaks the truth, and it is just. It is generous, hospitable, temperate, scornful of petty calculations, and scornful of being scorned. It persists. It is of an undaunted boldness and a fortitude not to be wearied out. Its jest is the littleness of common life. That false prudence which dotes on health and wealth is the foil, the butt, and the merriment of heroism. So, end quote, the person who, say, accounts his or her money, they plan, they prudently account for the risk, um, that person displays a lack of heroism in Emerson's definition at every turn. Um, in this framework, I would definitely not be a hero. I see myself as persistent and resolute, but I'm also contemplative and calculating. In fact, um, there is a passage where he really steps on my toes if I wanted to think of myself as a hero. Quote, We have seen or heard of many extraordinary young men who never ripened, whose performance in actual life was not extraordinary. When we see their air and their men, when we hear them speak of society, of books, of religion, we admire their superiority. They seem to throw contempt on the whole state of the world. Theirs is the tone of a youthful giant who is sent to work revolutions but they enter an active profession and the forming colossus shrinks to the common size of man. Um, you know, I used to be a lot more what you'd probably call idealistic or perhaps revolutionary than I am now um, before I entered what Emerson calls a, quote, active profession. Um, but I guess I don't look at it as a lack of heroism, but as maturity, of wisdom, of buzzing the rough edges off the things I had thought only a little about just because I hadn't had enough time in life to think about them more. Um, but Emerson sees all this as a lack of heroism. The essay here, it's its really thought-provoking, um, and given his terms that he defines for himself, I can't disagree with him. 
Um, this isn't necessarily how I use the word hero, but in his framework, he's not wrong. Um, what word would he use for someone who tries to apply calculation and wisdom to action and persistence? That person to him is not a hero, but what is she? I don't know. All right, so we'll end with Emerson there and move on on May 26th. Um, on this day, we return to Shakespeare's King Lear. I'm starting to pick up on one of the things that Dr. Elliot does in these selections. He will first pick a selection from the middle of a text. And then in a later week, we return to the beginning of the text that we'd already read from the middle of. Um, that's what we have today. The opening lines of King Lear, um, when, say, back in, I think, the 17th episode, we were in, uh, I think, Act 4. Um, as you may recall, King Lear, set in ancient Britain and based on the mythological 8th century BC King Lear. Lear is an old man who divides his kingdom among his three daughters, Goneril, Regan, and Cordelia. However, uh, Lear does not divide his kingdom evenly among them, but rather splits it up based on whoever loves him the most. And unfortunately, he measures who loves him the most um, through whoever can uh, kiss his ass in words most effectively. So the youngest daughter, Cordelia, doesn't play that game, even though her expression of love is the purest. And then she is disinherited entirely as a result of this. So this is how the play begins. The oldest daughter, Goneril, uh, spews out this gaudy set of lines. Sir, I love you more than word can wield the matter. Dearer than eyesight, space, and liberty, beyond what can be valued, rich or rare, no less than life, with grace, health, beauty, honor, as much as child e'er loved or father found, a love that makes breath poor and speech unable, beyond all matter of so much, I love you. In the same vein, the middle daughter, Regan, I am made of that self-metal as my sister, and prize me at her worth, in my true heart, I find she names my very deed of love, only she comes too short, that I profess myself an enemy to all other joys, which the most precious square of sense possesses, and find I am alone facilitate in your dear highness's love. All throughout, the youngest uh, daughter Cordelia is making a side to herself, love and be silent, and then, then poor Cordelia, and yet not so, since I am sure my love's more ponderous than my tongue. So when Cordelia is called on to speak, she responds, Nothing, my lord. Lear. Nothing? Nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bond. No more, no less. How, how, Cordelia, mend your speech a little, that you may, lest you may mar your fortunes. What Lear doesn't realize here is that, quote, according to my bond, may be the strongest expression of love that she can find. Not this big mess of hot wind coming from the other speakers, but the kind of love you might find in, like, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. You've heard read at weddings. You know, it's patient and kind and not self-seeking and no keeps no record of wrongs and so on. Nevertheless, Lear disinherits Cordelia and further banishes Kent, who's the earl who tries to call Lear's attention to the mess that he's making. And then this begins, then, the tragedy that we'll watch unfold and sends us a warning about falling for flattery. All right, <clears throat> to close out the week, we have a theological piece called The Education of the Human Race from the German writer Gotthold Lessing, 
which Dr. Elliot promotes as an advancement of religious toleration and freedom of thought. Um, what this selection actually is, is an essay comparing the process of education in an individual to the process of revelation, revelation being the process of God revealing himself to humans in the human race as a whole. So Dr. Elliot says that Lessing was persecuted for these beliefs, among uh, among other beliefs. Um, but amazingly, I don't really find much here that's too shocking for any mainstream faithful Christian. And maybe that tells us how Christians have, have transformed over the centuries. Um, yeah, some of this here does resist conventional interpretations, but none of it like screams out heresy. Um, the only thing that you might quibble with is this statement, quote, Education gives to man nothing which he might not induce out of himself. It gives him that which he might induce out of himself only quicker and more easily. In the same way, too, revelation gives nothing to the human species which the human reason left to itself might not attain, only it has given and still gives to it the most important of these things earlier. Um, and I think it's fair to say um, that most Christians would say that revelation from God supplements what's attainable from uh, individual human reason alone. So then what does Lessing tell us? Quote, that which education is to the individual, revelation is to the race, end quote. He tells us that in education, it matters in what order we learn something. Um, and it's likewise with revelation and that there are things that we don't find in fullness in the Old Testament because the people were not ready for them. I suppose that this does promote tolerance in an age where one might not be able to appreciate the partial truths held by others like Muslims and Jews or even other Christians, but the recognition that, for example, hey, we don't find much about the afterlife in the Old Testament or that um, God as portrayed in the Old Testament doesn't conform to that, the the deist style uh, prime mover and cosmic watchmaker. Um, that's something we have to deal with. And this doctrine of education corresponding or being an analogy to revelation is not really a bad way to do it. Okay, so I'll wrap up there. Don't want to get too heavy in theology. Um, thank you for listening. Please join me next week for a different take on the Faust legend than we've experienced already, among several other things. If you need to contact me, um, please send me an email at zach.garrett at outlook.com, Z-A-C-H dot G-A-R-R-E-T-T at outlook.com. And I look forward to spending some time with you next week.